Asia Tech Podcast. Voice of the Asian Tech Ecosystem. Hello, this is Graham Brown from Asia Tech Podcast. This is ATP Asia Matters number 610, broadcasting to you today from Hong Kong. And I want to share with you my thoughts and insights on possibly what is the biggest growth story of the next 10 years, not just for Asia, but for the world. It's the $36 trillion A2A opportunity. And let me talk about what this is about. This is when two worlds come together. And whenever the world changes, particularly in terms of shifting power dynamics, we often experience it first through the people that we come into contact with. And our understanding of these new newcomers that we come into contact with is often a more an insight into our own worldviews than theirs. I'll give you some examples. In Tokyo, there's a famous phenomenon called Bakugai, which I've talked about in a previous podcast. Let me just share with you again what that's about. Bakugai in Japanese breaks down the two parts of the word baku and gai. Baku means explode and gai is from to buy or shopping. So kaimono is shopping in Japanese. So it's explosive shopping and it's a phenomenon that Japanese people use to describe Chinese tourists in Tokyo or Japan. And it's a phenomenon where Chinese tourists rock up on their tour buses and they empty out a Louis Vuitton store. And, you know, these are the extreme examples that we hear about in the media. And, you know, everyday people talk about Bakugai. Another example of this first contact, and it's really sort of an indication of these two worlds coming together. And as I said, it's, it's more an insight into the understanding or the worldviews of the person looking at this phenomena than the, the people within that phenomena itself. Because there's a big underlying meta trend here, which I want to talk about. That's the $36 trillion A2A opportunity. So let's sort of back up a little bit. Japan has for, well, two, three decades been the biggest, um, you know, an often unchallenged economy in Asia. And now, obviously, China is bigger than Japan. And it's not just about size now, it's also about wealth, because China now isn't just a market of billions, but it's a market of hundreds of millions of middle class people who have money. And these tourists are going to Japan and they're buying goods which the Japanese see as luxury goods. You know, the goods that the Japanese were buying in the 80s and 90s in the bubble era. But now the Chinese are doing it. So they're sort of seeing this phenomenon and they're trying to sort of put it into some you know, understanding that, wow, this is something new that's happening. And what they call Bakugai really is just the sort of the, the tip of the spear. It's, it's the vanguard. It's the beginning of a bigger phenomenon. That's what I want to talk about today. You know, what happens is whenever you have this emergence of an economy or a people, it's the people we first come into contact that often shape our understanding of that trend. And in, in some ways, there, there's sort of old world views and prejudices involved, and we don't really kind of understand the bigger trend that's happening. So... You know, when we look at the media, we read stuff like the Bakugai and, you know, the Chinese tourists and so on. But the underlying trend behind that is much more fundamental. And that's what I want to talk about today. 
Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at atp.show. So these have patterns. These trends have patterns. So if you want to understand what's happening next in Asia, especially the A2A market, then go back a little bit and look at what's happened previously. So we're talking about Bakugai today. Well, for the Japanese, it was kind of the same. If you go back to the 80s, it was the Japanese in Europe and America, their tour buses, which were the subject of media stories, you know, the Japanese tour bus that would rock up and they would all come out and they would all empty out the Fendi store or the Gucci store or wherever it may have been. And they would all have their latest Sony electronic devices from Japan in the 80s, their camcorders and their Walkmans and so on. And it was a phenomenon because this was the first time the world had ever really seen Japanese consumers come outside of Japan. Up to that point, you know, all we knew Japan was as just a manufacturing base. You know, Japan has established itself as a consumer electronics and automotive base. You know, we knew brands like Sony, Panasonic, Mitsubishi, TDK and all those. But we never actually saw Japanese people except on TV. And then... Suddenly, Japanese people were coming to Europe and they were, you know, going to all the stores of Paris and they were, you know, like in Barney's in New York and they, suddenly they were turning up in Los Angeles and, you know, this was a new phenomenon for everybody. Suddenly, Japanese had money. And there are precedents for this as well. If you go way back, it's not just Asia and the rest of the world. When the, uh, the Americans turned up in Europe, you know, so many stories were written about how these, you know, these sort of very worldly, these very cool, trendy GIs, so, you know, the soldiers that were stationed in Europe were now based in places like the UK or Germany and France. And obviously the women went wild and obviously the men didn't like it because, you know, these guys were like listening to cool music and they had like chewing gum and, you know, these all these kind of things, which for... A teen, if you were growing up in the UK or you were growing up in Europe in the 40s and 50s, this was like, you know, something else. And, you know, it was the, the, the blue jean GIs in Germany that brought all that kind of like jazz and rock and roll music to Berlin, um, you know, and really create that love of, you know, Western music with like German youth who had really sort of, you know, being born into a world that was just a you know very grey world, a world of despair, a sort of post-war Germany. So again, it's this first contact where we you know we experience a, a meta trend in human terms. We experience it through the people without actually seeing the meta trend behind it. So the meta trend that I want to talk about today is A to A, Asia to Asia. Trade and it's a thirty-six trillion dollar market by twenty thirty. When you look at it in terms of the middle classes of Asia, by twenty thirty, two thirds of the world's middle class will be living in Asia, and this is a fundamental shift from our understanding of what Asia is or was. And it goes back to those first contact examples again. You know, you talk about the Bakugai example, the Japanese understanding of Chinese consumers is, is very different 20 years ago than it is today because, you know, 20 years ago, you know, Chinese people were poor by comparison to the Japanese. But now, 
obviously, you know, GDP-wise, they're still behind. But now we have Chinese consumers who are outspending Japanese. So that's sort of challenging their understanding because now it's a, a situation where the Japanese are asking questions of themselves, like, you know, what's going on? Why, why are we now behind? Why are the Chinese now wealthier than us in many cases. And the way they sort of rationalize this shift is to contain it in something, couch it in sometimes negative terms like bakugai. So this is what's happening. It's A to A, it's the A Asia to Asia trade. And I believe it's the biggest growth opportunity in the next 10 years. And whilst first contact is really defined by these sort of human, very qualitative ad hoc stories that we all experience and they're shared by word of mouth and we read about it in the news and so on. There's a lot more tangible going on in terms of Asia to Asia trade. And where I am right now in Hong Kong, I'm staying at the hotel right by the airport. Um, so you might be able to hear some of the airplanes behind me taking off and landing. Um, and, and if you were to look out the window of this hotel, just to the left, you would see a, a, a massive construction site. And what's going on is that they're building the entrance, the mouth to a, a tunnel, which will go into the water, the strait between Hong Kong and on the other side of the water, Macau. And the tunnel will go through the water a little bit, come out over the water and then proceed as a bridge across to Macau. And this is the Hong Kong Zhuhai Macau Bridge, which when it's finished will be the longest bridge in the world. 55 kilometers, I think it is. And I read today that it's something like 70,000 tons of steel, something like that. Or it was a rather bizarre analogy, but just trying to put this into context, it, the, the media said it was 70 Eiffel Towers worth of steel built to create this bridge. And it's, uh, I mean, it's an interesting concept. It's been, you know, it, it's obviously a, a very high-tech bridge and it's a big part of the Asian growth story. But this has been around for a long time, this idea of the Hong Kong-Macau Bridge. You know, it's been around since the 80s. And, you know, what's happened is up until that point, Hong Kong and Macau were, were owned separately by different European powers, Hong Kong by United Kingdom and uh, Macau by Portugal. And, you know, they, they developed separately. Hong Kong became a financial hub. Macau became a bit of a, a gambling and gaming hub. But they all attracted a lot of wealth. And when they were handed back to China, a lot of that wealth came from China. And even though technically they are part of China, well, you know, they're still different worlds. I mean, when I flew from Shanghai Airport to Hong Kong, I had to go through the international departure channel, not the domestic one. So it still very much is a different country in that respect, even though officially it's not a country. So they are, in a way, disconnected. There is a, a road and there's a ferry that takes Hong Kong and a train as well that takes you to the mainland. And there will be a high-speed rail 
operational later this year, which will take you from, I think, Hong Kong Central to Guangzhou or Shenzhen within 14 minutes. So all of that is being connected up, but there's still this piece around um, the Delta, which is from Hong Kong to Macau. And whilst Hong Kong and Macau don't necessarily need to be connected, it's a part of the bigger plan, this, this connectivity plan. It's a part of the, the whole sort of Greater Bay plan. And, and these two cities are sort of on the western um, axis of the Greater Bay. And the rest on the east, you have like, um, what do you have? You have Guangzhou and you have Shenzhen that I've already mentioned and a whole bunch of other cities, like 11 cities in the Pearl River Delta, which will all become part of this Greater Bay plan, which if it was to be connected up, would be the biggest city in the world at 66 million people or about $2 trillion in GDP, bigger than the San Francisco Bay. And it's a very sort of conscious play as well by the Chinese government that they call it the Greater Bay because it is greater in comparison to the San Francisco Bay Area. And, you know, if you were to go to Google and Google the Greater Bay, Google still thinks the Greater Bay is San Francisco. So it hasn't yet sort of caught up with what actually is going on here. And one of the reasons, obviously, is it's not officially a whole city yet. So this connectivity is happening right now. And interesting part about this Hong Kong, Zhuhai, uh, Macau bridge is that it's not just a, a simple bridge from Hong Kong to Macau, two of the wealthiest cities in the world, by the way. It goes from Hong Kong, and I believe, to Zhuhai first, and then to Macau. And they're right next door to each other, those two. But Zhuhai is actually on the China side. And the idea is, is that uh, Zhuhai will, uh, it, it, well, it's a, a less developed part of the Greater Bay. I mean, you know, it's nothing compared to Macau, Hong Kong, Guangzhou or, or Shenzhen. But what they want to do is open up the Greater Bay and Hong Kong, especially to Zhuhai and they're going to make that area into, I believe, an economic free trade zone. What, what exactly that is, I don't know. Obviously, it's all about the execution of the idea rather than the idea itself. But what that could mean is, if it was to work out, that that area would have access to very cheap labor by comparison to Guangzhou and Shenzhen, for example, and a lot of labor, and, you know, that will allow a lot of the capital which is invested heavily into Hong Kong and, you know, the eastern part of the Pearl River Delta, so like Guangzhou and Shenzhen, to, you know, distribute to the western side. So that will help develop that western side and, I guess, in some ways, emancipate the working classes there and, you know, turn them into you know, another ge generation of consumers, just in the same way, you know, Henry, Henry Ford did with his workers, you know, by paying them well, he created a workforce who could afford to buy cars. I think you'll see a similar kind of effect over there on, on the western half of the, the Pearl River Delta in the Greater Bay Area, where you're going to have that money that was previously going into Guangzhou and Shenzhen, now having an alternative. So if you're looking for a cheap manufacturing base, well, maybe Shenzhen or Guangzhou isn't the cheapest option anymore. And those, in a way, have become a lot more technically advanced than they once were. You know, those two cities have become real hubs in terms of high tech 
uh, rather than just sort of cheap technology and plastic widgets and knockoff goods and so on. But there still is a market for that sort of low-end stuff, the low-end manufacturing. So what I would foresee is that would shift over to that side, you know, the, the Macau Zhuhai area. So that's where that's going to happen. That will create a new manufacturing hub for the lower end of manufacturing, whereas the higher end stuff will happen over in Guangzhou and Shenzhen. So creating all that kind of con connectivity is key to this whole growth story, which is Asia to Asia trade. And what's going to happen is that you're going to have this explosion in uh, wealthy middle-class Asians over the next 10 years. And that's going to create an interesting dynamic. It's going to create an interesting dynamic in both Asia and outside of Asia. It's going to define how Asia does trade with itself and the rest of the world, and also going to define how the rest of the world does trade with Asia. Because until this point, you know, we have to look at what Asia is or was in terms of, uh, you know, it's a comparison to the rest of the world. So as an example, you know, when I grew up in the 80s and 90s, Asia was really, I suppose you could def define it in four regions. The first was Japan, which was the engine of wealth and growth in Asia. You know, you had companies like Sony, Panasonic, all those ones that I've mentioned already. You know, Sony was a, a revolutionary and groundbreaking company. And to think that it brought CDs and the Walkman to the world, you know, we, we kind of overlook what Sony's contribution, as well as those sort of mini transistor radios way back in the 60s as well. Not to mention... Not to forget as well, sorry, the automotive industry, which really was a massive wealth generator for Japan. So Toyota, Honda, etc., which led the way. And that really was the core of the Asian story in the 80s. And at a point, I mean, I talk about this in previous, previous Asia Matters here on Asia Tech Podcast. At a point, Japan was growing at a phenomenal rate. We talk about the Chinese economic miracle, but... The Japanese economic miracle, I believe, was bigger. China has, has been growing between 6 and 10% over the last 10 years. But let's put this into perspective. There was a time when Japan was growing at 34% a year. I know th these figures are just incredible, but there were like two years, I think, in the 70s when it grew at over 30%. So can you imagine what that must have been like where the economy was just expanding at such a pace, three times faster than China today? So really, that was the big story. When I was a kid back in the 80s, it was Japan, which was like tier one, the engine of the growth. Then you had these sort of weird, I suppose is the best word, expat bubbles. You only kind of went there if you wanted a little bit of adventure or a risk or had a contact. You had places like Singapore, Hong Kong. As examples, they were nothing like they were today. Singapore was very much a manufacturing hub back in the 80s. And later in the 90s, it became a service hub. You know, what, what we know as Singapore now is a financial and, and startup technology hub. That, that didn't exist sort of in the 80s and 90s. And Hong Kong was a bit, you know, as I said, it was, it was an expat thing. Like you only went to Hong Kong if you knew somebody in Hong Kong. You, you didn't certainly go there um, if you were sane. 
and you, you know, you valued security or a career or, or whatever, you went there because you knew somebody who could introduce you to somebody in banking or real estate, something like that. So you had those kind of expat bubbles. And then you had this third layer underneath that, which were the factories. You had China and Taiwan as well on the semiconductor side. And China, at the time, if you go back to the 80s and 90s, China was all about garments. It was all about, you know, T-shirts and shoes. And it was where everything cheap and plastic got made because there was hundreds of millions of people moving from the rural countryside in China to the cities and working for peanuts, really. And that enabled these factories to turn out very, very cheap goods. And that was really the third level within what was Asia back in the 80s and 90s. And then there was the rest, which, you know, countries like Indonesia, Thailand, Vietnam, you know, Cam- well, I wouldn't mention the even more fronting markets like Cambodia and Laos, but Indonesia, Thailand, Vietnam, Philippines, maybe. Um, a little bit of Korea as well. I suppose you put Korea in with ta- Taiwan, but th- these were like the real frontier markets. You you only went there because you were backpacking, right? Nobody went there to work unless they were just crazy. I mean, I do actually know some friends who moved out to Indonesia, but often these were done through channels. So, you know, a lot of Dutch moved to Indonesia because of the connections. Um, but that was about it. There wasn't, you know, an option to even go there unless you were kind of backpacking. So those were the sort of four regions in Asia back in the 80s and 90s. But over the last 20 years, that's changed fundamentally. And on the one hand, you, you take that first layer, which was the engine, which was Japan. Well, Japan's bubble burst in the early 90s. So what was once double-digit growth became anemic growth rates. I mean, Japan has struggled between 1% and 2% growth rate a year. And to put that into perspective, I've lived in Japan. I first lived in Japan in the mid-90s. And every time I go back to Japan, I notice that prices don't change, which just seems crazy. And you can actually go to a konbini, which is like the convenience stores, like 7-Eleven or Lawson or Famimart, and you'll actually see that prices pretty much are the same or less than they were 20 years ago, which is just a crazy concept. For anybody else in the world, you're so used to prices going up, up, up and up. But in Japan, they've stagnated or gone down. And that whole stagflation situation where you have stagnation, well, that's not stagflation, but you, you kind of have a situation where you have a stagnant economy that, you know, you get a cash 22 situation where, you know, people don't want to spend or don't want to say, don't want to invest because there's no growth. But because people don't invest, there's no innovation. And then you have an old economy and, you know, a, a, a demographic which is aging as well and, and a, a falling birth rate. You have that situation where, you know, the whole democracy just grinds to a halt. And that's really been Japan's problem for the last 20 years. So what was once the engine of Japan, I mean, of Asia has changed. Now China has become that engine. And increasingly, the Southeast Asian economies have become the engine, which I'll talk about in a minute. And those expat hubs that I mentioned, Singapore and Hong Kong, have changed as well. So 
what were once expat bubbles have transformed into dynamic hubs. So Singapore and Hong Kong now are very dynamic uh, ecosystems, especially for startups. Hong Kong stronger on the fintech side. Singapore, you know, very much stronger on the services, but also rivaling on the fintech side as well. And very much run by top-down, centrally planned governments, which have, I suppose in a way, if there's ever an argument for central planning, look at Hong Kong and Singapore, because they've done a very good job. They've reduced red tape. You know, look at, take Hong Kong as an example. If you set up a business in Hong Kong and you are doing business outside of Hong Kong, then you could end up paying no corporation tax. It could be completely tax-free. And the tax rates as well, about 16 17% for those two jurisdictions as well. So they're very sort of pro-business, very dynamic, and they attract a lot of talent globally for those reasons. And then you let's go back to China now. So what's happened to China? So whereas in China you had, back in the 80s and 90s, effectively a manufacturing low-end economy where it had a very strong demographic advantage where you had hundreds of millions of people who would work for a snip of what you would have to pay a Western worker. You had a situation where the capital that that demographic advantage created then in itself created a knock-on middle class. And this goes back to that Ford phenomenon. You know, Henry Ford knew if he paid his workers twice as much as the average manufacturing worker of the day, he knew he'd create a generation of workers who could afford to buy cars. So what's happening is a very similar shift in China that you now have a situation where now that people don't want to work those factory jobs. I mean, yes, they exist, but you now have a generation coming through that have a bit more security who are now turning to things like startups. And China itself has moved up that technology curve. You know, it's moved from producing T-shirts to iPhones to now looking at more advanced technologies. You know, now it's looking at technologies which itself is taking the lead in. So, you know, T-shirts were just very much low-end labor, low-skilled labor, and they were so much cheaper than the West in producing those iPhones. Again, at the beginning, it's because it was cheap, but they could also invest now in technology in the manufacturing process. That expertise then gave them the foot up to take it to the next level, where now Asia is very much leading in terms of technologies like, for example, big data and artificial intelligence, which I'll talk about in a minute. So... You know, what happens with these economies is they go up the curve and, you know, they they start very much at the bottom end all the way up to the higher end. And as a result of that, they they enrich the people within the economies at the same rate. And then that creates this sort of consumer-driven economy and this growth of the middle class. The knock-on effect of that within countries like China is you're seeing a secondary echo of that taking capital out of China into Southeast Asia. And what's happening now is, I mean, take bike sharing, for example. So if you're a a bike sharing startup in Asia, 
or China particularly, I mean, you have hundreds of competitors. You know, you have Mobike, you have Ofo, and all, all different kinds of sh- bike sharing startups, especially if you go to a place like Shanghai. If you walk around Shanghai, there's just millions of bikes everywhere. Not only can they produce these bikes so damn cheap, but they can just park them anywhere. And sometimes there's just piles and piles, literally, I mean piles. They haven't parked them, piles of bikes just like thrown away. You know, the cost of producing a bike for these companies must just be, you know, it must be a handful of dollars. So if you're a bike sharing startup, you know, you have so much competition. If you're an investor now, you know, where would you put your money? You wouldn't necessarily put it into a bike sharing startup because you could maybe get better returns in places like Southeast Asia. So you have this third knock-on where the middle classes are creating this capital, which is then going back into uh, financial markets, which are then seeking out returns in Southeast Asia. So Indonesia, Thailand, Vietnam, three examples of countries which are really benefiting from the spread of Chinese capital outside of China. So let's have a look at the A to A market in terms of what it is today. So the middle class in Asia, as I said, is going to be worth $36 trillion by 2030. Now, Asia does more trade with itself today than it does with the rest of the world. So that really creates an interesting dynamic you know, where we once saw Asia as that cheap manufacturing hub for the West, producing T-shirts and even later stages producing iPhones, we're seeing a situation where now there's another market growing and it creates this dynamic which we have to be very aware of because on the one hand, that idea of Asia serving the West, well, that's broken. So if we still sort of have that idea towards Asia, then, you know, we really don't get what's going on, the full implications of that A to A market. And on the other hand, we also have this situation where we also have to service that market. So who is going to sell to Asian middle classes? So they have that that sort of inherent desire for Western goods because there's a bit of status towards it. And, you know, you've heard all those kind of stories about Chinese consumers buying French cheese and red wine and in the same way the Japanese did back in the 80s as a sign of arrival. It's a, a real symbol of their arrival. You know, suddenly now when, you know, they look at the magazine covers and they see images of Western people, you know, the beautiful people with their cars and handbags. And it's very much an image perpetuated in advertising as well. And they they sort of believe that that's kind of what they need to work towards. So when they go out and buy those things, they want those kind of brands. They want the Mercedes and the BMWs and the Fendis and so on, because that's what they think uh, is a symbol of success. However, that's changing because now you have a situation where a younger market are coming through and they don't necessarily want those things that the parents wanted. And that sort of very overt and capricious consumerism is something which they're a little bit mindful of, a little bit more wary of. So they're looking around and this is a real opportunity for Asian brands to service that market. And so there's that dynamic where Asia is looking at Asia to service those middle classes. And also Western companies need to think about who's going to service those those consumers. Because, you know, if you look at the IT 
industry, 50% of US, uh, sorry, 50% of the revenues of the US IT industry come from overseas. So Asia is a big part of that. So what does that mean when you have a brand like, for example, Amazon, who must be looking at Asia as their next big thing for you know their retail and e-commerce business and they're walking into a market where geographically they're at a disadvantage because you know they, they don't have the the logistics logistics hubs that their competitors do I mean Amazon obviously is established in Japan um, but it's only just got a presence now in Singapore and obviously it's no presence at all in China and outside of Singapore and Southeast Asia, it doesn't have any kind of presence. I, I think Amazon started a Amazon prime delivery in Singapore this year, but it's very sort of low key. It's very, you know, MVP minimum viable product approach with some quite, you know, early adopter types really sort of testing the market for Amazon's presence and, you know, whilst all of this is going on, their biggest competitor, Alibaba, run by our friend Jack Ma, coming out of China, buying up all, it seems, the e-commerce players and platforms in Asia. And the reason why they're doing it is not necessarily because they're wanting to get ahead, you know, and steal, a, uh, steal an advantage over Amazon. It's they're competing against Tencent who are another Chinese player. So what's happening is, is if Amazon needs to get into Asia, and it, I don't know if they do in terms of, you know, where their strategic positioning is today, but they certainly will do in the future. If Amazon needs to get into Asia, they're already being locked out. They're already being shut out by the big players in China. They've already got an advantage. So let's have a look at that. Because this is really key. So what I'm talking about here with the A to A opportunity, that $36 trillion middle class market, what's already happening at an early stage, and this is a warning sign to the West, is that the best Western companies are being shut out. And I look at Amazon and say that's possibly one of the, the best brands in the world, certainly the most dynamic. The history of Amazon probably, you know, is a good indication that it has the best leadership. And this is a brand that will get shut out of Asia and that $36 trillion market. And so let's have a look at that. Let's sort of unpack why Asian brands, Asian providers are at an advantage over players like Amazon, even the best. Well, let's put protectionism aside because that's always leveled at any kind of discussion about the you know, the Asian market. They will say, oh, well, you know, Asia's protectionist, especially China. China's protectionist. Yes, it is protectionist. You know, it does shut out the, uh, you know, the competition. And, you know, you just go to China and see how difficult it is to use the, you know, what you're familiar with in terms of internet services from the West. You can't use Facebook. You can't use Google. can't use Twitter. You can't use anything, really. Um, you can use LinkedIn, but interestingly, I don't know why, but you can't use LinkedIn video on the Chinese LinkedIn, and it doesn't even show up. 
I couldn't work out why. I was using my LinkedIn in Shanghai. And even though I posted a video, people were liking it. it on my laptop, which was connected to the hotel Wi-Fi, it didn't show up anything. It didn't get any notifications or whatever. But on my mobile phone, on my smartphone, which had a Hong Kong SIM card, which had roaming on it, I could see everything, which was just interesting. Just goes to show that that firewall is real and it's very hard to penetrate. I know there are VPNs and so on, which allow people to get access to the outside world, but it's a lot of hassle and the market's constantly shifting. The VPNs that were once successful, you know, are no longer successful because they're shut down and so on. So it's a very protectionist market. And that's given those players like Alibaba and Tencent a real advantage because it's allowed them to grow without interference from the outside. So, yes, it is a protection and protectionist market in some respects. But to say that the US isn't protectionist, well, you know, you've got to understand, step outside a little bit of the Fox News world and look at what the reality is, is, you know, Huawei will tell you that the US is protectionist. Huawei hasn't been able to get any kind of presence in the US as much as it would like to because it's been shut out of everything. You know, whenever Huawei wants to get into the the US, and especially on the network side, because, you know, Huawei, one of obviously the big biggest part of their business, even though they're a handset manufacturer, is, is the back end. They pretty much build the whole internet, except in the US, all that back end stuff. So... They're not allowed to do that in the U.S. And one of the reasons the U.S. says Huawei is shut out is because of, you know, their relationship with the Chinese government. And that makes sense. If you think about it, I mean, if you're an American politician, you're going to talk about protecting American interests. You don't necessarily want to have a foreign power with a kill switch on your network. So from the Western perspective, it very much makes sense to shut out those kind of companies. But China uses the same argument as well. I mean, it will use the same argument why Facebook isn't allowed in China. Yeah, very much that it appears on the surface that Facebook exists in a competitive market. But, you know, step outside of Fox News again and look at the reality is that, well, who actually owns Facebook? Who's involved in this? There's a lot of companies and a lot of, I would say, organizations involved in Facebook, which are very closely related to the government. And, you know, I don't know how much of it is true, but rumors suggest that the CIA are uh, early stage investors in Facebook through their investment fund, which they do actually have. So, you know, and you look at the news recently with all the Cambridge analytic uh you know, scandal that's been brewing up over the last few weeks. And you understand that that connection between the government and those large tech players is probably as strong in the US as it is in places like China. So let's just put that protectionist argument aside a minute, because when you actually look at it, well, China's a very competitive market. I mean, Facebook really doesn't have any competition in the US, whereas in China, you have... Uh, many social networks all competing for each other. In the US, you only really have one social network, uh, mass social network like Facebook. You really only have one uh, messaging platform like Twitter. 
you only have one e-commerce provider, Amazon. So, you know, and you really only have one uh, video ch- video platform like YouTube and one search engine like Google. So even though the US is supposedly an open market, the the end result is it has a lot less competition than China. I mean, you, you look at China in terms of video platforms, it has, I don't know how many video platforms platforms it has, whereas YouTube just has, you know, a sole a monopoly of the market in the US. In China, there are dozens of video platforms that come and go. You know, they, they, they turn up overnight and within weeks they have hundreds of millions of users and then some of them disappear. So let's just park protectionism for a minute because I think it's, uh, you know, when you look at the reality, the reality is often a lot further from what the media lead us to believe about the situation, the differences between US and China. So the advantages really for Asian brands, Asian providers over the West in terms of servicing this $36 trillion market is less about protectionism. And it's more about factors which the West has a disadvantage in. And the first one is scale. So factor number one is scale, economies of scale. You know, the, uh, you know, a, a Chinese provider like Alibaba or Tencent can have hundreds of millions of customers and could be generating so much cash that, you know, they could easily go into markets like Southeast Asia and just buy up the, the incumbent players because they just are wash with cash. And that gives them a huge advantage over their Western counterparts. Because it's very hard for Amazon, for example, to justify spending billions on an e-commerce provider in Southeast Asia because the investors won't let them. Whereas, you know, in China, they expect them to do that. So they have real economies of scale advantage there. And that's really sort of playing out as well in big data. Let's talk a little bit about that as well. I mean, on the, the sort of the very negative side of that, we're seeing a lot of this, you know, this dystopian view of what the future may look like when we talk about smart cities in Asia. And you see facial recognition technology, you see, you know, CCTV technology everywhere. And whether it's actually going to work or not, you hear about local metropolitan governments in China using a combination of facial recognition technology and uh, smart city IoT devices, cameras, etc., to uh, monitor jaywalkers. You know, if they find jaywalkers, they'll identify who they are and find them. I don't know how true that is, but there's been a lot of talk about that in the media. How well that will be implemented, I don't know. But you have that sort of very dystopian view of how Asia is using big data. On the other side, the flip side of that, you have the very positive view, which is that now you have companies like Tencent and Alibaba who have big data in the you know hundreds of millions about their consumers. And it's not just big data about who they are and what their preferences are and what their likes are and who they're connected with. It's also connected to their shopping habits. So these companies also have payment systems which are effectively generating a lot of data about what you're actually buying and what your preferences are. So 
these companies have you know big data advantages that we we don't have in the west and look for example at what's happening with cambridge analytica it's like whenever a company like facebook gathers big data it's like wow it's really bad news it hits the news and then suddenly it's you know a scandal we don't know to what extent that goes on in asia however you know it's not leaking out to the news in such a way and you know what's happening is is what we do know is these brands are using it to create better experiences so you know they're using that information to optimize the the retail experience so for example if you are an alibaba customer you can use alipay you can go to uh, a hair salon and we talked about this in one of ashley talks um podcast which you can listen to on asia tech podcast atp.show slash ashley talks and she talks a lot about i think it's number two we talked about the new retail experience about how brands like alibaba are using big data to create better offline retail experiences so you can go walk into a hair salon and get a better experience you know they know who you are they can offer you the right deals etc etc because What's happening is is that hair salon is plugged into Alibaba's network of data, so it can it can develop a picture of who you are and your shopping habits as well. So that gives these companies a phenomenal advantage because it's very hard for Western companies to get access to that kind of data. Whether or not that's a good thing or not, well, in terms of competition, it certainly puts them at a disadvantage. But you know, it may be ethically better for. Western companies not to have access to that data, but either, you know, when that actually plays out in the the real world, in the competitive marketplace, it basically means that these players are able to develop um, offerings, innovations, especially like, for example, look at what uh, Alibaba is doing with the Hefe stores in in China. The retail experiences they're creating are far beyond what we are used to in the west and possibly the future of what retail would be so my point is is because asian companies have access to data on the scale which you can only really dream about on the west in the west then they have a competitive advantage to be able to innovate the next thing because they have the right data the tools the raw material to better do that but for us in the West, it's a lot harder because, you know, we try and get that information. All hell is let loose. The second point is the economies of reach. And I talk about this before. So, you know, it could take a five-hour flight from any of the major hubs in Asia, Singapore, Hong Kong, for example. Within five hours, you can access three and a half billion people. That's half the world's population. If you were to do that in San Francisco, you would have, I think, access to about 500 million people. So let's put that into context is that a IT company, an IT company, a startup in Singapore or Hong Kong, let's say, for example, because I'm here in Hong Kong today, has access to half the world's population, seven times as many customers as uh, that same counterpart in San Francisco in the Valley. So not only do they have access to billions of people in terms of data, the cost of them doing that physically is much, much lower. And it's much, much easier for them to service these markets. And 
like I said before about Amazon getting into Southeast Asia, which is really the, you know, the next big thing in terms of middle classes, it's very hard for Jeff Bezos to go to his investors and convince them that they should be spending $10, $15 billion in what for many investors in the US is unknown markets. And it's not just the fact that they don't know a lot about them. Time zones as well is, is pretty hard because, you know, there's that weird thing if you're in San Francisco, then Asia, especially Southeast Asia, it's like, I think, 13 hours ahead. So you're never kind of online or communicating at the same time. Whereas the whole of Asia is pretty much within two-hour time zone, if, if you exclude the Western parts, like India, for example, but that main bulk, that main middle channel all the way from Japan to Southeast Asia, including China, Hong Kong, Taiwan, uh, Korea, and so on, you, everybody's within two hours. So think about what that means for these brands. They have a massive advantage to service those Asian middle-class customers so Western companies are really at a disadvantage if they want to get into the action. They, they can't, certainly can't do it from San Francisco. So they have to then set an outpost up in Asia. And, you know, that's all kind of, um, you know, that presents all kinds of challenge for them. The third reason why Asian companies are much better positioned to service A to A is connectivity. So you have the physical connectivity, like I talked about, for example, here in Hong Kong, you can get to 15 minutes away to the Pearl, Delta, Pearl River Delta, the Greater Bay. You can get to Guangzhou. You can get to uh, Shenzhen, a uh, 15, 20-minute train ride. On the other way, you can get across on the, the opening Hong Kong Zhuhai, Macau Bridge. You can get to Macau. I don't know how long that's going to take to cross over. It's 55K, so let's say, I mean, at worst, it takes an hour. So within an hour, I suppose, you know, within a couple of hours reach, you could probably access the whole Greater Bay Area. That's 60, 66 million people. You know, that gives you a massive advantage in terms of physical connect connectivity. And on, on top of that, China is also building out what it calls One Belt, One Road, which is Xi Jinping's, the president's, um, initiative. It's his baby. And if you want to learn more about One Belt, One Road, then listen to Kerry Brown on Asia Tech Podcast talk about uh, Xi Jinping and One Belt, One Road, what, what it's all about. Effectively, it's the biggest infrastructure project ever. It's $5,000 billion of uh, potential infrastructure spend. That's $5 trillion and it will connect two-thirds of the world's trade. So effectively what it is, it's, it's this sort of manifestation of Chinese soft power. In very much the same way, if you go back to the last two episodes I did on Asia Tech Podcast about you know, the Asian century, it's what America did in the early 20th century when it went out and built out the connectivity of the world. It built out railways, telephones, you know, motorways, expressways, rail, you know, everything. It built up that whole sort of connectivity which helped the world grow without necessarily doing it at the end of a barrel of a gun. You know, that came later on. But 
there was a very much a non-interventionist approach to doing that in the the first, well, I suppose the first 40 years. I mean, America didn't get involved in World War One to what, 41, 42? I don't know. I don't know quite exactly when it was, but it didn't get involved until Pearl Harbor. And America very much was all about trade, soft power, and not interventionism. You know, America boycotted the League of Nations for a while and didn't get involved in World War One either. And so we're seeing that as well, is that China's doing a similar thing, building out this connectivity, soft power, as they call it. So that is going to benefit these Asian companies no end, because effectively what China's doing is building out uh, an infrastructure network of train lines, seaports, technology, everything that all links back to China. And the Hong Kong-Juhai Bridge is just one example of that. Interestingly, the Hong Kong-Juhai Bridge cost $15 billion, which is exactly what the border wall between the US and Mexico is predicted to cost. So you have to ask yourself, what is the best use of your money, taxpayers, building a bridge or building a wall? So that connectivity will benefit Asian brands and Western brands are really at a disadvantage because Asian brands have direct access to that. And not, not only is it the physical connect- connectivity, it's also the personal connectivity as well. Asia, what, Asia has what is called the bamboo network, which is that connection of Chinese families across Asia. And you know they're sort of connected through cousins and so on. There's a large Chinese population across the whole of Asia, and you see it in many of the, the big cities. You see it in Kuala Lumpur, you see it in Singapore, you see it in Jakarta, um, for example. Um, and also Bangkok as well. It's not obvious to a lot of people that one of, the, I think the biggest minority community in, in Thailand, the Chinese, a lot of them came to, to China two or three generations ago. And um, they're all connected somehow to family back in China. Not not actively, but when it comes to raising money, it makes things a lot easier because a lot of the the startup, you know, the first wave of startup innovation in Asia outside of China was driven by uh, second or third generation Chinese immigrants, effectively, whether it was in Thailand or Indonesia or so on. They not only had the work ethic, but they also had access to the, the capital from back in the motherland. So that bamboo network comes into play and that could really influence, for example, the competitive landscape if you go back to, for example, Alibaba versus Amazon because Amazon doesn't have any presence. It doesn't have any network, you know, physical or personal. Whereas Alibaba does because it's only one degree of separation away from a Chinese second generation entrepreneur in any of the cities that it wants to enter into. So those three factors make the uh, Asian companies a a significantly better position to take on the A to A market, that $36 trillion middle class market. 
And in many ways, Western companies are a massive disadvantage. And what's going to happen is, is when Western companies, that, that moon period, which they've been granted for, you know, that sort of idolization of Western brands, when that sort of wears off a little bit, what's going to happen is, is that, you know, these companies are really going to struggle to compete with Asian companies for the, the hearts and minds of Asian middle-class customers, you know, and by the time, you know, the, the American brands, the Western brands are coming to Asia looking to service that middle class, they were already been shut out. So when they're looking at, for example, insurance market, finance market, all, all those sort of markets where they, they sort of had to come a bit later on. Because it, it, you know, it's a lot easier, for example, with, if you're a Nike, because it's just a case of buying a shoe and you don't have to translate that shoe. You don't have to, you know, it doesn't have to have all the kind of subtle nuances that you need to make it localized for the Asian market. So those services, like, for example, technology and finance, for example, which have come later on, they're a lot more exposed to Asian brands because Asian brands can really uncouple those Western uh players from the market with a better proposition or you know or at least back a local proposition which you know is more in tune with the needs of asian middle class customers i think what happened is you know the natural extension of that trend is that asian brands will then go back to the us so we're seeing as an example alibaba they will be the first to break the US market. And what will happen is, is that when Alibaba breaks the US market, they will effectively open the floodgates for the rest of the world. Sorry, the rest of Asia, I should say, to do that. And not just the rest of Asia to do that, but also the rest of the world for Alibaba to go and find you know, new markets to penetrate. And I think by the time that they do that, by the time that Asian brands penetrate the US, they will already have billions of customers. So we're seeing this now in, in the near term, Alibaba versus Amazon. You know, Amazon isn't getting anywhere in Asia, whereas Alibaba is already setting up in the US. I think he claims, Jack Ma, that Alibaba will create a million jobs in the US by empowering mom and pop stores you know, across the US to set up on Alibaba. And I believe it will happen because Jack Ma speaks very good English. I think he was an English teacher originally. You may have seen his face at the World Economic Forum this year. But, you know, Jeff Bezos can't speak Mandarin. So what's going to happen is America's best company will get its ass kicked by Alibaba in Southeast Asia. And then Alibaba will possibly take that fight to the US. But it, it won't be done in those sort of aggressive terms that I've kind of labeled it in an in overt sense because, you know, China obviously very much a proponent of harmony, at least on the, the open public stage. And, um, you know, it doesn't do them well to go in with sort of very, you know, the guns blazing because, you know, they set themselves up for failure. However, you know, in reality, that's probably what's going to happen. And on a longer term, we're going to see that translate to a significant competitive advantage for Asian brands. So 
their ability to service that $36 trillion market at an advantage will give them market leads, access to more capital, access to more information, more data, which will then give them the foothold to take on Western brands on their home turf. Right, and right now we're not seeing it. I mean, right now we're, we're very far away, except for the exceptions like Alibaba. But I believe within five to 10 years, it's going to become a lot more apparent. Just in the same way, you know, Japanese brands completely blew away the competition in consumer electronics and in automotive. I think we're going to see a similar kind of thing, but in different areas. It's not going to be consumer electronics. It's going to be the higher end applications of technology, like, for example, AI. So if you look at the data now, I don't have access to the data off the hand, offhand, but in terms of research, especially when it comes to AI, China files more uh, papers on AI and machine learning than America does now. And you look at what's being invested in in China, especially on the big data side of AI, and you really understand that, wow, this has really moved on from the days of manufacturing T-shirts and cheap trainers. What's happening now is, I believe within five years, China, at least Asia, will be a world leader in AI. Two things. On the first uh, point, you have access to big data, which I talked about before, which is absolutely essential for AI. And then on the second um, aspect, you have investments in AI, which are unparalleled in the West. You know, you have, for example, Alibaba and Tencent. I think it's Alibaba that have set up their own AI center of excellence. I need to look into this a bit more, but I read that some of the American universities uh, are struggling to hold on to their talent, you know, their, their professors and, you know, their top researchers because Alibaba is just poaching them. You know, they have the money to get the best talent to come back to China, to come to China and work on their projects. And here's the thing, something we talked a lot about in Asia Tech Podcast is how important talent is in the startup ecosystems because now Alibaba and Tencent can pay for it. And it's not just the fact that they can pay for it, but they've effectively de-risked that decision for a lot of you know the most talented people in the world. And what really drives those talented people isn't necessarily the paycheck because they've pretty much got it all covered. They've got the options from working at Google for, you know, for five years or whatever. But what they really want to do is get involved in big projects that make a difference. So if you were an AI expert, you would look at a place like Asia and let's say Alibaba was to come along and offer you you know, a, a better salary than what you're getting now and offered you the, you know, the prospect of working in, working on massive projects that could really change the world. It could be smart cities, um, for example. That's the kind of thing that attracts talent. And so what's going to happen is, is this A to A market, that $36 trillion market, isn't just going to be about the, um, you know, the the growth of services or Asian brands, 
But it's also going to be about the consolidation of Asia as a world leader in some of the most cutting-edge technologies, like, for example, AI. You can also see the application of that in automotive. Because there's an interesting dynamic in automotive. I mean, it has its kind of history, which... Uh, and if you listen to the podcast I did with Horace Deju from Asimco, who, you know, he, he's the guy that was called the King of Apple Analysts. You know, we talked quite a bit about the history of automation in the world, automotives, automotive, sorry, and, and how that each sort of successive growth in economies around automotive industries was the result of taking ideas from another country and improving upon them. So Germany, which was, you know, one of the key markets for developing the original uh, car, you know, never really did anything with it. You know, they, they saw the automotive industry as very much a sort of a craftsman type industry originally. You know, the French took that, they made it better. And then the, the Americans looked at that. So Ford looked at that and he took the ideas from the French and the Germans and he put into that his manufacturing process. And I talked about this in a previous Asia Tech podcast, I talked about the San Francisco Fair, where this is 1915, where Ford actually demonstrated a Ford production line at the fair, the World Fair. And I think it made about a thousand cars during the time that the, the fair was on. But that kind of industrial manufacturing was unknown. So they were basically taking ideas from the old world and making them better. And the Japanese did that. They looked at Ford. You know, when Japan wanted to rebuild its manufacturing base, it sent its executives to Detroit to learn how Americans manufactured cars. You know, how did Ford do it? And it took that information back into Japan and then sort of made its own uh, manufacturing base around automotive. At the beginning, it was, you know, the bikes, like Honda, he started out making the old put-put bikes, you know, the old, I think at the beginning they were, you know, I don't know what, they were 50cc mopeds, right? But that was Honda's start. And then Toyota as well. I mean, Toyota, which was the, 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 the birthplace of lean manufacturing. That all came from ideas taken from the West. You know, if you know the history, it was an American who was sent to the Japan, post-war Japan, to install the ideas of lean manufacturing into Japanese workplaces. Can you believe that? You know, what we talk about now, if you know lean manufacturing, we talk about kaizen, which means constant improvement, or the reduction of muda, which is, means waste. These sort of principles which are core to lean manufacturing didn't come from Japan, they came from America, and it was a, an American called Deming, and they, they still have the Deming Award in Japan given out every year. Arthur Deming, I think it was, came to Japan and instilled those ideas into Japanese manufacturers. And Japanese took that idea, that whole idea of constant improvement, test, improve, test, improve, which sounds so familiar today. If you're a startup founder, you'll be so familiar with that, that lean startup movement. Lean Startup was born out of the Japanese lean manufacturing process, which was born out of the 
American manufacturing process, which came from France, which was based on German manufacturing, which, you know, if you keep going back a step, you'll find that all took ideas from somebody else. You know, you, you keep extending that way back and you'll eventually get, get to the Greeks and the Romans and the Assyro-Babylonians, right? It goes on forever. So my point is, is when you talk about automotive, look at what now Asia is going to do. Asia is going to take the ideas, especially China, from Japanese and American manufacturers and it's going to make them better. Now, we've already seen this in high-speed rail. So Japan is very much synonymous with the bullet train or the Shinkansen, which was launched in 1964 for the Tokyo Olympics. I mean, it's phenomenal if you think it's 55 years old. You know, and as I said in one of my videos on LinkedIn that I posted, one of my Asia Man of Minute videos, that that date is actually closer to World War One than it is to today. I mean, it's phenomenal if you, how, you think of how advanced that was. So Japan, interestingly, and I learned, and thank you to my LinkedIn followers who educated me on this, that the high-speed rail example was actually taken from some workshop in Derbyshire, I believe, somewhere up north in England. And it just goes to show, I mean, you know, try and catch a train in England. It's a dreadful experience. And I can say that with authority because I've done that for many years. But in Japan, it's completely different and faster. However, the Chinese took that technology from Japan. And when I say took, you know, there are many different variations of that story. So I've got to be a bit diplomatic here. However, they got hold of the technology for whatever reason, and now they are building it out across Asia. So the bullet train, the Chinese bullet train, the improved bullet train, turning up in Thailand, Southeast Asia, you know, it's the one that's connecting Shanghai and the rest of China, etc., etc. So they've already proved that they can do it with some pretty high-end technology. The next step is automotive going down into cars. So I believe that what's going to happen is, is that whilst China may be able to produce cheaper cars and maybe better cars, it's not really the direction it's going to take. It's going to excel in other forms of automotive transport. You know, we're going to have to rethink what the car is and needs to be. Young people growing up today aren't getting driving licenses like they used to because it just doesn't mean what it used to. You know, if you go back to the 50s and 60s in the States, you know, you have that whole sort of era of young people growing up in the rock and roll times. Getting a car was a symbol of growth and arrival. You know, like I talked at the very beginning about whenever uh, any kind of market or people get access to money and things change in the power dynamics. You have these sort of very sort of personal stories around that change. And that sort of rock and roll era and the car was typical of what was going on at the time. And it was very much what the media were focused on, this sort of teenage phenomenon and very sort of negative attitude towards it within its within, you know, even within the US, looking at US teenagers. And you look, for example, at the, you know, movies like what was that movie by Steven Spielberg? American Graffiti. It sort of 
describes how it was back then in the 50s. That era's gone, and the car is being redefined, but we're still in the era where the car is still very much what it used to be. It's still very much a petrol-driven form of transport and a status symbol. However, I think it's going to be China, if anywhere, that will come up with a new version of what we need. I mean, now, we don't need a car if you live in many cities in the world. You can get around with Uber. Um, Obviously, Tesla is redefining what a car should be in terms of the actual combustion side, the propulsion side of a car. But I think there's a lot more work to do. I mean, we have the prospect of self-driving cars just around the corner. And that's where I feel that Asia will have an advantage because it's not just self-driving cars. You add into that the fact that you need billions of dollars invested and you have companies like Baidu, which is you know China's search engine. You have Alibaba, Tencent as well, all involved at some level in the car or the future of the car. You have within that the need for big data because you know cars, smart cities, um, AI, all are linked together. So again, you have that massive advantage that they have in the knowledge side of things. I mean, if they're sort of recruiting all the best brains in the world into China to help solve the problem of what the future car is going to be, then you know they certainly are going to come up with a solution faster than the rest of the world. And the final part in all of that, which is sort of rounding up what I want to talk about today, or what I have talked about today, the middle classes, because it's going to be the middle classes of Asia that are going to define what the future of automotive is, because the middle classes of the rest of the world not only have less money, that's the fact, I mean, as I said, $36 trillion, twice the size of the US economy, but also the rest of the world, they have vested interests. So they still grow up thinking that a car is a status symbol. I mean, it's changing, but it still is there. And there's a lot of vested interest in that. It's not going to go away. So suddenly, you know, people still work for automotive companies. There's still unions. You know, these people still have political power. So that will change because there's less of that in Asia. So if they were going to come up with a solution, then they have less to challenge them. Look, for example, to somebody like Elon Musk to come along um, with his alternative propulsion, you know, solution for the car. I mean, you know, there's there's documentaries written about the electric car and how long Detroit kept that down just because you know it was threatening their business. However, you know, it's going to be the middle classes of Asia that determine what that car will look like. And if you look at the data, you know, the data says so that the. the you know, when asked, can you see yourself owning an autonomous car of different countries in the world, the top two countries who saw themselves owning an autonomous car were India and China. And the more west you went, the less chance they saw themselves of owning a car. So like France, UK and the US were less open to the idea of owning an autonomous car. So my point is, is that when it comes to markets and technologies that touch our everyday lives, mobile, payments, automotive, artificial intelligence, B2B, 
big data, IoT, retail, all of that. When it comes to that, the A to A market is not only where the action is going to be, but they will also redefine it. They will redefine all of these technologies over the next generation for everybody, not just for Asian customers, but for the rest of the world. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at ATP.show.